This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd to be up here and to not have a guitar. Um, ben texted me this week and was asking what songs to do, and that was super weird to receive. And then I was trying to think, how on earth do I just even go up there and start? It's like this awkward transition. Um, anyway, that's me being awkward. I am, I am really excited and, and just honored to get to be here today and to get to teach from Scripture and uh, try to love and, and serve and build up our church in this way. So uh, let me pray, and then we will jump into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a good God that, that has made yourself known. We thank you that you have given us uh, your, your word, that you've given us this book of Colossians. And as we just continue and, and approach concluding this letter, would you just continue to just teach us uh, what it means to be heavenly-minded for earthly good, what it means to be focused on you and formed in your presence and to bring, bring good to those around us. And so I just pray that your spirit would be present, you would uh, just give me clarity that you would speak, uh, that I would not speak, and that uh, you would just impress on our hearts whatever you would, you would like us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yeah, over the last few weeks, we've been in Colossians, um, and the main theme of this has basically been, you know, heavenly-minded for earthly good. And so over the first four weeks, Paul was very focused on the heavenly realm, right? We, we learned the first week about how you can only be effective here um, if you are focused there. We learned the next week how Jesus is a king who's able to bring us into the presence of God. Then we learned about the wonder and the power of the mystery, which is Christ in us. Uh, and then we learned about how uh, what captures our affections forms us. And so those, those first few weeks, all very much focused on the person and work of Christ, who God is, and what God has done. And then last week, uh, the, the focus shifted, and it shifted more to what we would consider very practical, maybe the stuff that a lot of us like go to in Scripture. Uh, and Paul basically gave us uh, these practical ideas of the, the virtues, the things that we should exemplify as people, how we should be uh, as employees and members of our families. Uh, and it, to put it in the words that Aaron used, it was how to get the dirt out of our mouths and feast on the glory and majesty of Christ. How to recognize the things that we should not exemplify and then feast on the things that, that God has given us that are good and beautiful. And so as we come to the beginning of chapter 4, uh, Paul is beginning to conclude his letter. And so now he's taking kind of all of those main points and he's distilling them into kind of two I would say two concise ideas. And so the, those are to be formed by prayer and to bring good to others. Amen. And it's, it's not surprising that this follows the format of the book, right? We spent four weeks talking about being formed by God and the things that he's done. And then we spent one week talking about bringing good to others and kind of practically what that actually looks like. And so in the same way, we see that pattern of being heavenly minded uh, for earthly good, even here as he begins to conclude. 
And so as I talk through um, these two points, I'm going to go off on a little tangent and talk through the story, um, which is probably fairly familiar when I'm standing up here. Um, if you've been with us the past six months, maybe even eight months, uh, we've been talking a lot about this idea of the true story. It's essentially taking the story that's told in the Bible and, and simplifying it into six chapters or acts uh, and trying to tell the full story that is in the Bible, right? The Bible isn't just like a book of do's and don'ts. It's, it's a story that God has revealed that tells the history of humanity from beginning to end. It's this beautiful thing that reveals what God is doing. And so for anyone who's not familiar or needs a refresher, I'm going to go really quickly through the story, uh, and then I, yeah, and then we'll continue. So um, there are six acts, which I should have put up on the slide. So there's, the first act is a down arrow, okay? So you've got a down arrow, which is creation. God, in the beginning, created everything, and he created humanity uh, to be with him. Yes, thank you, Clint. Uh, yeah, so down arrow. So we've got uh, God creating, and he is in the presence of his people. And then the next act is, is the X. It's rebellion. It's that his people rejected him. Uh, they decided that they, they cared more about their own glory than his. Uh, and as a result, uh, they did not want to be in God's presence, and, and they were removed from God's presence. And, and humanity suffered, and we have experienced uh, death and suffering because of being removed from God's presence. But we have this forward arrow, which is the promise. God didn't just leave us in that place of hopelessness. He immediately said that, that this would be made right. And as we follow the story through history, uh, we see that picture and that promise growing and becoming more clear. Uh, we see God bringing people to himself and forming a people in his image and giving them ways to reflect him and enjoy him. Uh, but those people failed. They, they did not fully reflect God. They did not fully enjoy him as he intended. And so then we have the cross. We have Christ and we have redemption. Um, God himself comes and he fulfills the law. He's the most perfect human who has ever lived. And in fulfilling the law, uh, he, he shows what it's like to be formed by God. Now, Jesus was then killed by the people. The people didn't like that he said he was God, and so they killed him. But in his death, he really he took what we deserved, the punishment that we deserved, on himself, so that then we could actually have a restored relationship with God. And so from there, Jesus then sends his church out. This is the forward arrow. Uh, he, he sends us out to continue building his kingdom, giving us his spirit and, and telling us to carry on the work of bringing the good news of Jesus' kingdom to the ends of the earth. And then the final act, which is the down arrow, is that someday uh, there will be the new creation. Jesus will return, uh, and all those who trust in Jesus will enjoy eternity with Jesus. Those who, who don't trust in Jesus will, will not be in his presence. And so this is, it's a tough thing. And we pray and we desire that many people would, would come to know Jesus, that they would see this arc of story of God pursuing his people and making a way for people to be with him. And so that's a very short version of the story. We're going to look at it two more times. Uh, but essentially, the story is a way that God has shown us who he is what he is doing, who we are, and as a result, 
what we should do because we fit into this story. We are a piece of what God has, has shown us he is doing. And so uh, let's, let's jump into the first point. So the first point is formed by prayer. So we'll look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So my immediate tendency in looking at this passage was to just jump onto the modifiers. Uh, here's the imperative, you know, do this thing, and you need to be steadfast, and you have to be watchful, and you have to be thankful. Um, and I was, I was going down that route, and I shared this with my wife, Becca, and she very, I think, perceptively focused in on the idea of prayer as being the main point here. <laughs> uh, I, think it's, I think it's really easy for us to maybe gloss over things that we think we understand. How many of us feel like we understand prayer? How many of us feel you know, confident in prayer? Or maybe how many of us feel discouraged and scared around prayer? It's like you ask God for things that he may or may not give you. I think our cultural understanding of prayer is, is typically something like talking to God, right? And that's about it. It's, it's this one directional thing, asking God for stuff. But I think prayer is, is actually a lot more than that. Uh, prayer is not just an occasional one-way act, but a central way that God is enjoyed by us and forms us in his image. And so let's take a look at the story and let's see where we see prayer through the story and, and how that can help us just understand what prayer is. And so this will be familiar. There will be some repet repetition, but let's, let's jump in. So uh, back to the story. So we've got these six acts, and so we begin with creation. So right in the beginning, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they are in God's presence. They are able to talk with him. As far as we know, they were able to walk with him and enjoy his, his direct presence. We don't see a temple. We don't see prayer. We don't see altars. We don't see things the way that we know them because they were just they were already in God's presence. They, they didn't need a mediator or some extra thing to bring them into God's presence. But with the rebellion, we see them reject God's presence. They don't enjoy his presence. Instead, they want their own glory and so they are removed from the garden. They no longer have direct access with God. And so we don't, we don't see humanity enjoying God's presence like we did in the beginning. And so then we have the promise. And so here, right, the forward arrow, God has promised that he'll restore, he'll restore this somehow. And as we follow the story through the ages, we see God speaking to some people. And then we see God appearing to some people. And then we see God calling a family his own and then a nation his own. And he takes Israel, his people, out of Egypt and he guides them, his presence going with them in a pillar of cloud and fire. And he brings them into this promised land where he will dwell with them. He gives them a law and the law is meant to make them uh, enjoy his presence and know who he is. And he tells them to build a temple and the temple is going to be a place where God will meet with them. You see this just growing theme of God drawing people into his presence, creating a place uh, and, and desiring to be with people and to form them in his image. And so we see glimpses of people enjoying and delighting in God 
but in the end, you know, Israel did not fully enjoy God and they were ultimately removed from that promised land. And so hundreds of years go by and then Christ comes. So Jesus was our perfect example. Jesus fully lived in the presence of God at all times. Everywhere he went, the, the presence of God went. And when he taught his disciples how to pray, Jesus invited his disciples to call God Father. <laughs> like such an intimate, familial way to call God our Father. And in Christ's death on the cross, he broke down the barrier, right? He took our sin on himself and he made a way so that we could actually be in God's presence again. Right, this is the mystery of Christ. Now, instead of God dwelling in a temple like he had told Israel, God can dwell in his people, the church. And Jesus sent out his church. He gave us the spirit, God dwelling in us uh, to, to go and to bring his good message to the, to the ends of the earth. And the thing is, prayer is super central. When you read in Acts, when you read about the early church, you see uh, the disciples devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, then you see the, the church growing and you see that all of these, uh, these people who are following Jesus were devoting themselves to prayer. And then uh, when they appoint deacons, they, the expressed reason to, to appoint deacons was so that the apostles could be devoted to prayer, among other things. But it's, it, there's, prayer is everywhere and you see it in, in the letters. You see it both as an example and an encouragement. And so this is, this is where we sit in the story. We're in this forward arrow time as part of the kingdom. Why is prayer meant to be so central? It's because through prayer, we enjoy the presence of God and are reminded who he is and what he has done. And we are formed in his image. And the story culminates in one day, Christ returning and us being fully in his presence. And so, do you see the similarity, right? In the beginning, Adam and Eve were in the garden, in God's presence. They were able to enjoy him. And then that gets broken, and you see this growing theme of God drawing people into his presence, forming them in his image, desiring to be with them. Jesus comes, and now God actually dwells in us, and one day we will be fully in God's presence in the, the elevated state of the church in just full and perfect communion with God. Amen. And so prayer is this central thing. It's this, we were meant to be in God's presence. We were meant to enjoy him. And prayer is one of the main ways that we get to do that and be formed by him. So let's jump back into Colossians and see uh, what specific things Paul is telling us to do around prayer. So back to verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. When we see the charge to steadfast prayer, uh, it's, really, it's really easy to actually make a parallel with something Paul said earlier. If we go back to chapter 1, in verse 3, uh, we see Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then he goes on and he, he explains uh, what he's thinking thanking God for our salvation, that we are bearing fruit, all these different things. Then we get down to verse 9. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We have not ceased to pray for you. <laughs> that, is, that is such a, a huge statement. And so Paul is, is calling us to be steadfast, to be devoted in prayer as much as he is, to be constantly enjoying God's presence as we go about our lives. And so he's also calling us to be watchful in prayer. And so what does it mean to be watchful? It, that term, watchful, comes up a few other places, but one of the main places, and maybe the most similar context, is in Mark. Uh, so when, when Jesus is going to Gethsemane, so this is Mark 14. We'll see how long it takes. Okay. Uh, so Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And Jesus goes away. He prays. He comes back. He finds the disciples sleeping. And in verse 37, we find him speaking to, to Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter was asked to remain watchful, and he was, he was warned that uh, he must be watchful so he doesn't enter into temptation. And I think it was more than just sleep that Peter was tempted. Right? I mean, he fell asleep. That's one thing. But I don't think Jesus was saying, don't sleep. <laughs> I, I think... Jesus was actually calling out Peter's temptation to trust something other than Jesus. Right before this, when Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that he'll be betrayed, Peter told him, no, you're not. Like, he, he didn't believe the word of his master. Then, right after this, when, Peter, when, when Jesus is betrayed, Peter tries to protect Jesus with a sword, which is not at all what Jesus has taught him to do. And then after that, when that fails and Jesus is truly taken away, Peter denies that he knows Christ at all. And so I think here... Jesus is, is calling to Peter that there are deep temptations to trust his own abilities and his own knowledge um, over Jesus. And if you want to take another dimension, Peter also failed to just love his friend. His friend asked him to pray for him. Jesus asked Peter to pray with him, and Peter slept. <laughs> and so I think Paul is likely using watchful in a similar context, a context of of our temptation to believe things other than Christ. One of the main purposes for writing the letter to the Colossians was to confront some false beliefs. Uh, if we look at Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I think, you know, like Peter, we're, we're tempted to trust in ourselves. We're tempted to trust in plausible solutions. And Paul is concerned about that. He knows about that. And he is asking us to be watchful in our prayers about 
the things that may take us away from faith in Christ. And so where, where are you tempted to trust in something other than the person and work of Christ? Maybe that's, maybe that's something you haven't shared with other people. And I encourage you, you know, share that with your gospel community or if you're in a DNA group, you know, think about that and share that so that your community can be watchful with you and can be praying with you. So this is a negative piece of the command, right? Paul is telling us something to, to be on defense against. Well, then it's followed by a positive piece. He's telling us to be people who are full of prayer that is full of thanksgiving. And there's a really strong thread of thanksgiving throughout this letter. Uh, in chapter one, we see that Paul is thankful for their salvation. He's thankful they are bearing fruit as the gospel does wherever it's proclaimed. He prays for us to be thankful for being qualified in Christ. In chapter two, he's, he calls us to walk in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, uh, that we would be full of Christ's peace, thankful and full of his word. And then here, uh, he's telling us to be steadfast in prayer with thanksgiving. And you see this theme throughout the book. You see it throughout other ones of his books, just a very consistent call and reminder to be thankful. And I think he's both exemplifying that uh, and encouraging that, that in our prayer, we are thankful. We are remembering who God is and what he has done, right? Just like we must be watchful of where we are tempted to trust in wrong things, we must be aware of the right things and the good things that God has done and thankful for those. And so in this first piece of his summary, I think Paul is, is calling us to be a people who are formed by prayer, who are watchful for the ways that we're tempted and that are thankful for who God is and what he has done. Yeah, as I've spent time thinking through this section, it's been really tough, right? Because my prayer doesn't look like this. <laughs> if, you had, if you had asked me probably a month ago before I started working on this, I probably would have told you I pray a lot. What I probably wouldn't have realized is how much of my prayer is just petition. It's just asking for stuff. Like how rarely do I just enjoy God's presence in prayer? How rarely do I just thank him and delight in who he is? And so my, my challenge to us this week, as we practice watchfulness and thanksgiving, spend time reflecting on who God is and what he has done. You can thank him for things. You can ask him for things. He welcomes that, absolutely. Uh, but spend time reflecting on who he is and what he's done. And it can be, it can be really hard. <laughs> And I think that's our human distraction. We just want to go straight to the things that we want. But there is, I think, such great encouragement in remembering our God who created everything, our God who has saved us, our God who has revealed himself to us and given us his word. And so, yeah, so next time you, you, you pray, I would just encourage you to spend time intentionally reflecting on who God is and what he has done and, and thanking him. Um, some commentators break this passage into to two main ideas also. And they say the first part is, is talking to God about people. And the second part is talking to people about God. 
And so in the next verse, we see the beginning of that transition. So let's look at verses three and four. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so while the point remains on prayer, now the, the focus of that is shifting. Before we were, we were told to pray and we're focusing on God and who he is, uh, and now Paul is asking for prayer to be able to tell others about the mystery of Christ. And don't, don't miss, this is starting in prayer. Again, just like the theme of this whole letter, would be beginning with being heavenly-minded and focused on God. And so the, the main idea here, I think, is to bring good to others. That Paul is asking for opportunities and the ability to bring good to others. And specifically, it's bringing good to others by, by speaking. Right In chapter 3, uh, Paul talked all about different virtues, different ways we should be as employees, as husbands, as wives, as children. Um, and he gave us lots of really practical advice for how to live. And here he's giving us a very different and very focused point of we actually need to speak. Maybe, maybe you've heard the phrase of, what is it, preach the gospel at all times and when you have to use words. I think that's completely false. I don't think you can preach the gospel without words. You must do both. Like you must live in a way uh, that, that God has called us to, but there's also going to be times where you, you have to speak. And that's really the only way that the mystery of Christ can be received and understood by others. And that's really the best good we have to bring is God himself. And so um, let's look at... This is Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Um, I did not preface this well at all, but just looking again at the mystery of Christ, right? What is this thing that we're talking about? Paul wants to be able to speak about the mystery of Christ, but what is that? And we talked about it a few weeks ago. And so this is uh, some of the verses from that. So verses 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So the mystery is that Christ lives in us, right? When we were entirely undeserving, we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. Christ gave us his righteousness so that we could be in God's presence again so that God could come and make his home in us. And that is, that makes no, no, it makes sense, but it is a mystery that was not understood until Christ came. And you see that throughout the Old Testament as, 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 or New Testament as the writers are writing about the mystery, this thing that stumped Jewish theologians for, for hundreds of years. And in the end, it's, it's, God coming and making his home in us. <laughs> and so the mystery of Christ is something we have to speak about, and that's that God has made his home in us. And so let's, let's jump into the true story again, and let's see how this idea of bringing good to others and speaking about that is a theme and a thread that we see throughout the story. And so, right, so we've got 
creation, again, we've got Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created, and they were immediately commissioned to continue God's work, to cultivate and care for the the garden and to, to spread God's goodness across the earth. In the rebellion, they rejected that. They didn't want to work for God's glory. They didn't want to bring good, except they wanted their good. (laughs) And so humanity was removed from the garden. And in continuing the work, really, at best, we could just slow the deterioration and experience suffering in the work. But in the promise, we see God revealing more and more of what he intended. And so we see God calling people out Uh, When he gives his covenant to Abraham, he tells them that in him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's not just a blessing for Abraham, it's a blessing for others. Later in giving the law to the Jews, right, it can be summed up as love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, (laughs) right? It's it's not just for me, it's for other people. Uh, the, The temple was was called a house of prayer for the nations. So again, not just intended for one people, but intended to go out and bring other people in. The Jews were meant to be a blessing and an example to those around them and to bring in the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and welcome them in. Like this beautiful picture. It wasn't just for their benefit. It was for the good of those around them. But we don't see this. Instead of influencing all those around them and bringing good, the Jews ultimately were influenced and absorbed many of the practices of those around them and were removed from the promised land. And it's, it's not until we see Jesus in redemption that we actually see the picture of what God intended. And in Jesus, we see someone who fully fulfills God's law. We see good news to the poor freedom to the oppressed, healing to the sick. We see Jesus going and the presence and kingdom of God going everywhere he goes. Jesus brought good to others more fully than anyone else. And in his death on the cross, right, he he gave us now the ability to be part of what he's doing. He's given us the spirit and sent us and empowered us to continue his kingdom work and to go to all the nations and teach them the good. And and the best good we have is not a list of do's and don'ts, but God himself. And so this is where we sit in the story, right? It's we are the church with the spirit of God and the natural overflow of having the spirit of God and being formed by him is bringing good to others, is loving others and telling others about this great mystery that we have received. And someday in the new creation, we will be in God's presence. We will once again be in his presence. We won't need to tell people who he is because everyone will know who he is. But we are in the middle right now. And so do you see this this theme, right? Just like Adam and Eve began, they were created, they were in the garden, they were given a creative work to continue. So the church has been commissioned by Christ and given the spirit to continue his kingdom work in teaching others all that he has taught us and telling them about the good news of, of Christ, that he has come to be in community with us again. So let's, let's jump back into Colossians and let's see what Paul is saying about 
bringing good and talking about the mystery. So chapter four, verses three and four. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the first thing Paul is asking for is prayer for himself. And well, that's, uh, that's a, he's asking for himself. I think it's fair to say that we can also ask for the same prayer. Um, and so the, the passage, right, has transitioned uh, to bringing good, and it's beginning from a place of being heavenly minded. So like, continuing this theme of we have to be heavenly minded to be of earthly good. We have to pray uh, and begin in prayer before we can actually be effective in, in, in caring and loving others and bringing good to them. And so he's first asking for God to open a door. He's recognizing that only God gives opportunities. God ultimately sets up the times, the places, the people, and ultimately the, the reception of us sharing good news. And we should, we should be praying for that. We should be actively thinking about that and desiring that other people would, would come to know Christ and that, that God would give us opportunities. And you know, maybe, maybe this is something you're really comfortable with. Maybe you love doing this and you do it all the time. <laughs> Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid of being in prison, right? Paul says, the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Like maybe you're afraid of maybe not actual prison, but being ostracized or seen as different or, or something by people if you were to tell them about Christ. So the, the second thing is that, that Paul is asking for the ability to make the proclamation clearly. Right? There's no, no benefit to anyone if we can't actually articulate why we have hope. <laughs> and so it's, it is important that what we say is clear. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. So as he, as he continues, so now going into verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so here he's shifted more to the Colossians, and he's, he's giving them more direct, uh, direct direction, I guess, uh, versus asking for prayer for himself. And so, you know, first thing we see is that he's, he's saying to, to make the best use of time. And that phrase... Uh, is a, it's kind of an odd phrase, and it only comes up three places in Scripture. It comes up here, it comes up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and it comes up in Daniel. <laughs> and so if you remember a few, a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the mystery of Christ, um, we dove into Daniel. It seems really random, um, but there's this, this story where right, the, the Jews have been exiled to Babylon, and in Babylon, in this case, uh, there is a king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a dream, and that dream disturbs him. And it's so disturbing to him that he calls all of his wise men, and he asks them both to tell him the dream and to give him the interpretation. It's that important. He can't tell them the dream and have them make stuff up. Like, they need to prove that they know. Um, and they don't know. And they are stalling. And the king accuses them of buying up time. 
And that's a similar phrase, uh, translated differently, but a similar phrase. Uh, and so he's accusing them of buying up time because they are buying up the time to conceal that they don't know. And I think Paul, Paul may be using this in kind of an opposite sense, just like they were buying up the time. We should buy up the time eagerly to reveal the truth. Rather than concealing it, we should be eager to reveal the truth. And so the second thing that he's saying is uh, that we should speak graciously with words that are, are tailored to our listener. You know, you, you hear a lot of different metaphors for salt. You're probably fairly familiar with that, right? Salt in food is, it can preserve, it can draw out flavor. Uh, something I didn't realize is salt was a really common metaphor for delightful speech in the ancient world. Other, other writers wrote about good speech as being like food with salt or not salt, right? Uh, so that's, Paul, Paul knows his context and he's using a really appropriate metaphor that would be understood and recognized as actually a metaphor for speaking well. And I think this is something that Paul does, does really well. Um, Paul is very good at taking the mystery of Christ, taking our hope and actually putting it in context. And I often think about when he was in Athens, uh, when he was in Athens and he goes to the Areopagus and he speaks with the Greeks, he doesn't just talk to them using Jewish metaphors. He doesn't just talk with them using all of his own examples, but he talks about um, an altar he saw. He, he recognizes some of their cultural values. He quotes some of their philosophers. All of this to build the case that, that Christ is the unknown God and who, whom they can have hope. And it's amazing. You know, in, in sharing about Christ, do we know how to speak to our context? Do we know how to take the mystery, take the gospel, and actually make it good news to the person that we're speaking to? I think that can be a really, a really hard thing to do. Um, I think a lot of times we get stuck, I get stuck in this very, you know, these are the six acts, I need to say them exactly the same way every time. <laughs> um, but there's a way that the gospel is good news to each and every person in their context, in their struggle. And it's important that we are able to put that in context. And so in the second half of Paul's summary, he's encouraging us to pray for opportunities. He's encouraging us to begin in prayer as we seek to bring good to others. And then he's more explicitly telling us that we should be you know, eager to take those opportunities, that we should walk in wisdom, that we should... Um, speak about the mystery in a way that is clear and gracious and tailored to our context. Amen. So maybe it's because I'm an Enneagram type one, but I always think of bringing good as like, I'm supposed to just bring good to myself by being good, right? Like the, the end of the law is me fulfilling the law, right? And that's, that's not true at all, right? Um, this idea of bringing good to others is really important, and I think is something that I didn't get for years. I was too, too focused on my righteousness and my appearance, not realizing that the, the reason for the law, the giving of the law, is so that I could 
have these virtues for the benefit and the good of others. And so reading through this has been really, really tough. It, it, it shows me my selfishness and my tendency to just want to like keep the good of God and his presence and, and the virtues for myself and for my own glory instead of trusting that Christ is the one who is righteous and now the good that I can bring, the good that I can achieve is through his power and for the good of others. And as I've thought more explicitly about speaking about it, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm super bad at that. I was, I was spending time beginning to prepare for this sermon. I was at a coffee shop and I feel like God blessed me with multiple good conversations with people and good conversations where I felt like it was intentional and I was able to listen and engage. And in both cases, I felt like I should you know, somehow like offer to pray or, or something. And I, and I didn't. And, you know, was that because I was afraid? Was I afraid of what people might think of me? Or, you know, would that relationship end because I was the weird Christian guy? Um, or did I just not know how to actually take the good news and put it in a way that would be helpful? And so I was stuck being unprepared, right? Because when we share the mystery of Christ, when we share this reality that there is a God who loves us, who is willing to be and able to be in relationship with us and cares about the details of our life, like that is such a beautiful thing. And that can speak life into any, any situation, and maybe, maybe you've had similar experiences. Maybe when things arise and someone is, you know, someone's struggling or it just seems open, maybe you just shy away from sharing about God or the, the hope that you have. Uh, or maybe you're really bold and you're really good at this, uh, but maybe you don't know that you always speak it in a way that is hope. You know, maybe, maybe you're, you're kind of stuck in a, in a way that just isn't able to be received by your listeners. And so my, my challenge to us is begin in prayer. <laughs> Delight in God's presence. Thank God for who he is. And then you can probably think of people that are already in your life that are maybe open to, to hearing about God or have just been, you know, just really consistent friends and spend time praying and asking God to show you how the gospel is good news to them how the gospel means hope in their context. And so as Paul is beginning the conclusion of his letter, right, he's distilling the main ideas of the book into two main ideas. One, that we would be people who are formed by prayer in the presence of God, who are watchful for temptation and thankful for who God is and what he's done. And two, that out of the overflow of being in God's presence, we would desire and be ready to bring good to those around us, able to speak clearly and graciously to those we, we come in contact with. Right, The mystery of Christ is that God dwells in us. Because of what Christ has done, we have the Spirit in us. We can enjoy God's presence. And that is the only place we can start if we want to be of earthly good. We have to be heavenly minded to be of earthly good. So let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for this letter to the Colossians. We thank you that you, you have revealed yourself 
God, that you have made yourself accessible to us and given your people your spirit. We thank you that your, your mystery is, is good news to, to all. So I just pray that, God, would you teach us to delight in you, to enjoy your presence in prayer. And God, would you fill us with boldness and willingness and eagerness to tell others of, of the hope that we have. I just pray that you would go with this church and that you would continue to teach us to reflect you more. Praise in your name. Amen.